This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's Sunday morning! All right, why am I yelling? Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. And we have a very interesting program this morning. We're going to cover some very important areas of discussion. To say our discussion also is timely may well be an understatement in a way. It's nice to have you join us on our program. And um, no matter where it is that you are joining us, 66 on AM, 101.9 on FM, the growing number of people who are using that radio.com app, and you should be. And thank you for joining us on our program. We roll until 7.30 this morning. In a discussion this morning, we're going to be touching on a number of topics with guests who we've spoken with, I believe, one time previously. His name is Jonathan Bell. Jonathan is an attorney, a labor and employment attorney. He's the owner of Bell Law Group which um, is on the web, by the way, at belllg, that's all as one word, dot com. And we're going to get into talking about a number of different areas with uh, Jonathan in this discussion. Let me just mention something right at the start of the discussion, because one of the areas that we are going to get into in discussion is something that we on this program have touched on mm, I think it's like one or two times over the years that I've been doing this show. Uh, But this obviously has become an issue that is talked about an awful lot. And I speak specifically about the topic of sexual harassment and specifically talking about sexual harassment or harassment in the workplace. Now, there's lots of discussion uh, on this topic. I'm going to mention something right at the start, though, because I do have to do this, and I have to be honest with the folks who are listening to this program, because a lot of you listen on a regular basis, and a lot of you are regular WFAN listeners. So I will say right at the start that in this discussion, um, in case anybody has the inclination to, we're not going into any discussion about uh, any of the allegations surrounding anybody employed here. Um, That is something that I have zero desire to talk about, and to be very honest with you, I'm not permitted to. Um, Our discussion will focus on areas including sexual harassment in the workplace. We're going to also touch upon an interesting area that we have really never delved into, but seems to be, um, and Jonathan can correct me on this, it almost seems like this is becoming more and more of an issue, 
as the Americans with Disabilities Act um, settles more into place as a federal law, and this is in the area of compliance with um, issues arising from the ADA. First of all, Jonathan, it's nice to have you join us on our program again. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Thanks again uh, for having me. It's always a pleasure. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I'd like to begin this discussion with a little bit of background. I introduce you as um, labor and employment attorney. Um, Two thoughts with that. What does that exactly mean, and why that area of specialty for you? Well, labor and employment has really been exploding uh, as of recent years. There's a lot of uh, hot trends in the law uh, that has picked up through the, you know, what, the last 10 years or so. Uh, it's really an interesting mix of federal laws, New York state laws, and New York City laws that sometimes uh, aren't exactly the same. So you have to be in compliance with all three, which makes it difficult, especially if you're in a company that has offices in different states to be in compliance with federal law is not enough. You have to go into each individual state and ensure that you're in compliance with both state and local laws. So it's always changing. Uh, With every presidency, there's normally some changes. Uh, Then you have hot topics. I mean, we're we're really going to be discussing the hot topics now between the, the new sexual harassment training laws and regulations that are required these ADA compliance laws, both in um, public accommodation places, such as local pizzerias or big stores, versus ADA compliance in the workplace. Uh, These are things that are constantly in the news, and employers who are blind to this are going to be in a lot of trouble unless they get knowledgeable counsel on this type of stuff. How did you get into this area of law? Um... The story, my last name is really Belsky, mm-hmm. before it was changed to Bell. And um, my family, there was actually a movie about my family called Defiance, where uh, it was about these Jews that saved 1,200 Jews from the forest. So you might be saying, saying, what does it have to do with employment litigation? Well, I was always the type of guy that wanted to kind of stick up for the um, person being taken advantage of. And I thought that in the employment arena where you have... Uh, some people taking advantage of and not being treated right, uh, it's sometimes it's tough to stand up for yourself because you rely on your paycheck there. So that's really what prompted me to get into the law regarding discrimination and wage and hour issues and sexual harassment and things of that nature. Now, as I got older and I got um, some friends who started some companies and businesses, they liked the fact that I knew what I was doing, that I, that I represented a lot of plaintiffs. They liked to know how the other side thinks, so they actually retained me to represent businesses, too. So my practice has, has evolved. I'm still about, I'd say, 60 to 70% plaintiff's work, but we're now we're starting to do a, a decent amount of management work and guiding them through the laws also. Well, you know, as you mentioned that before about the, you know, the different jurisdictions and trying to keep up with all these changes that are taking place, I mean, how do companies, how are they managing to do that? Um, So the bigger companies, they'll have labor and employment attorneys actually employed for them, uh, where their sole job is to make sure they're in compliance, and even still they make mistakes. Then you have the medium-sized or smaller businesses that can't afford that, so normally they contract with lawyers like myself to kind of keep them abreast of it. And others, others are just 
blind to it and violating the law without realizing it. And then you have the next category that actually know they're violating the law, but they're doing it as a cost-risk analysis. They say, hey, listen, if I follow the law, I, wouldn't be, I couldn't afford to be in business. If I get sued, I'll just shut down. So there's different, different categories of businesses uh, and how they handle it, uh, it varies. Mm. All right. Now, let's start off our discussion with uh, talking about where we are from a um, legal standpoint with this topic of sexual harassment and sexual harassment in the workplace um, in 2018. I mean, on, I guess, first of all, on a federal level, what kind of changes are we seeing? On the federal level, uh, there really aren't changes. The, the, the changes are really with respect to the New York State and New York City level regarding the required training and policy. Okay? Uh, sexual harassment has been a big topic, especially since the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And all these celebrities have been coming out, and you got these major names either uh, being prosecuted or just being outed for all these things that have happened to women in the past. Now, in reality, it's not like this just started. This has been going on for a long, long time. We've been representing victims of sexual harassment for years. And and I hate to say it, but I think that everybody knows of somebody that was sexually harassed. It is very, very common um, in the workplace because you spend more time in the workplace than you do at home, and often, you know, either relationships really do exist in the workplace or perceived relationships exist, and that's the problem. Either sometimes one person feels some way about another person that's not reciprocated and they kind of force themselves on them, and it's very unwelcome, right? It could be in the form of harassment or in the form of bribery, like for a sexual favor, we'll give you a raise, you know, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it could be in the form of a discreet act where if the person says, I'm not interested, they get fired, demoted, right? So there's a lot of different ways for sexual harassment. But going back to your question, the crazy part of the crazy change in New York State, which a lot of employers still don't know, that by October 9th of this year, Tuesday, you must have a sexual harassment policy, a written policy in place that covers certain things. It has to explain what sexual harassment is. It has to have a complaint form that someone could fill out and they know where to hand it in. It has to go over the fact that an investigation will occur. It has to talk about retaliation. For example, if someone makes a complaint and the complaint is investigated, and even if it's found unfounded, you cannot retaliate against the person who made the complaint. Now, I'm not talking about things that are changing in the law. The law has always been that way. But now employers have the burden to tell employees and have them provide written a written policy that goes over it, so this way the, all the employees have the knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So there's two, there's two facets. Number one is the written policy that has to be issued by Tuesday. For all, uh, even if you have one employee, this has to be done. And then within a year after that, October 9th, 2019, there has to be interactive training for every single employee. In other words, it's not enough just to send them to a website to listen to a video. It has to be interactive, meaning that it either has to be live, has to be ability to ask questions, or if it's over the web, 
It has to be maybe multiple choice questions, true, false, with the ability to ask questions afterwards. So it's really these new significant guidelines that I personally think are very important, but most employers are just they're just not even aware of this happening unless you're again part of a major corporation where where you're on top of the law. Mm. Interesting discussion we're having with Jonathan Bell on our program. As I mentioned, Jonathan is a labor and employment attorney, the owner of Bell Law Group, and he is our guest on our program this morning. We roll until 7.30. We will, in the course of our program, too, be able to work in some thoughts and comments from some of the folks listening to us if you want to join us and are on point with the areas we're talking about in this discussion. Um, We'll get to some of those in just a little bit. But, you know, with this October 9th, deadline, and you're saying so many companies seem to be just completely um, unaware. I mean, are there um, penalties that they face if these things are not posted, these steps are not taken? As far as penalties, I don't believe they've been issued any any, um, penalties yet as far as noncompliance. However, uh, to the extent the way that I believe the law is going to work is to the extent that sexual harassment training is not done, to the extent that there is not a policy, if, somebody, if an employee brings an action for this and uh, the company hasn't prov- hasn't, doesn't have proof of providing this type of policy and providing this type of training, it's not going to look good for the employer, even if they felt that they did everything they can uh, to avoid the situation. So um, there may be penalties coming that I'm not aware of uh, that, or that haven't been issued as of yet. I haven't read that in all the, in all the updates that I've seen, but I imagine that, that plaintiff's attorneys like myself, uh, if, they, if, they didn't get, if they're not in compliance with the policy, if they didn't get the training and I have a, a client who is sexually harassed, you better believe there's going to be allegations in the complaint that states that this company is not taking the sexual harassment uh, mandatory training and policy issuing seriously, and that's not going to look good for them. Okay, now to the other question. I'm just going to put this out to you. We have to pause in a moment for uh, a sports update, but I want to put this idea out to you because this always comes up in discussion. How is this proven? If somebody is making a claim that they have been sexually harassed, how did they prove it? circumstances of a case is different. That's a very good question, right? Mm-hmm. So you, a, a lot of these cases are he said, she said, right? And those are very, very difficult cases to prove. If the person who's doing the harassment only does it to that one person in the office, in, in a private office, not in front of everybody else, that's a lot more difficult to prove, especially if there's no track record of the individual doing this to other people. However, if there is a track record of the person doing this to other people, if it's a he said, she said, she said, she said, those cases are a lot easier to prove. That's issue number one. Issue number two, you know, a lot of these people uh, who actually sexually harass women, or it could be men, but mostly women, they have an ego and they feel like they're above the law. So they do ridiculous things and they have a, a, a relationship that doesn't exist in their head. So what they do is they text the person, they leave voicemails for a person, they email the person. So some people come to me with this big evidence file. Okay, that hold, shows, Jonathan, hold that thought there. Okay, sure. I, I want to come back to that and I want to give you enough time to be able to delve into this. Radio.com. Radio. 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 
It's Sunday morning on the fan. Yep, it's a football triple header on the fan today. Lots of NFL action. I'm Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Jonathan Bell on our program. He's a labor and employment attorney, the owner of Bell Law Group. Before we paused for our update and messages, I had asked you about how it is that one is able to prove allegations of sexual harassment. You were starting to address that, talking about, in some cases, people coming to you with evidence. Yeah, sometimes uh, people come to me with a big file of evidence. They have emails, uh, text messages, voicemail of their employer flirting with them, asking them out on a date, uh, sometimes uh, uh, sexual pictures and sexual references that makes the employee very uncomfortable. Sometimes there's a long trail of text messages where the woman states, you know, please stop, this is making me uncomfortable, or I have a boyfriend, I'm married, this is inappropriate, and it continues. In those situations, I mean, the employer is dead in the water. Uh, they're going to be hit with a lawsuit, and the lawsuit's going to be a very, very strong lawsuit. So a lot of this is ego. People think that they're above the law. They let their emotions uh, get carried away. And then, like I said, there are other times where there's like a pattern in practice. You know, they keep on hiring young, attractive women, and uh, every, every girl has a complaint uh, even though the individual did it in private, they did it in private numerous times to a bunch of different girls, and they all come forward and say, hey, the same thing happened. Like I said, a one-time he said, she said could be difficult to prove if it wasn't in public and out in front of other employees. However, the he said, she said, she said, she said, when you have a group of people saying, hey, the same treatment happened to me, or the treatment happened to one person, but it was so open and obvious in front of everybody, that's a very easy way to prove sexual harassment. And in this day and age, with the celebrities coming out and it being in the, in, in the media, and even, even Kavanaugh, even though it wasn't in, the, in an employee relationship, I mean, the Me Too movement is at a height right now, and people are coming out and they're realizing, hey, there are, there are laws that protect me. Now, the difficult thing is a lot of these times, these people... They work because they have to work, and they need their paycheck. So we're in a situation where they're afraid to come out and complain. They say, hey, listen, this is sexual harassment. I'm aware of it. I know. But in the same token, this person pays for my livelihood. I have a mortgage. I have kids. Uh, I'm in a difficult situation. I really can't complain. Well, the answer to that is, number one, that's the reality. Sometimes there is no answer to it. But the law does provide protection. So, for example, if someone complains about sexual harassment, to their employer, to their supervisor, to their supervisor's boss, because the supervisor's the one doing it, or the HR department, they're now protected against retaliation. They've engaged in protected activity. So what that means is there can't be retaliation for it. So like I said earlier, even if the investigation finds that the complaint is unfounded, you can't then turn around and discipline the employee. Sometimes an employee will lose on the first case, the main case which they brought, the sexual harassment or the complaint of discrimination or disability discrimination, but they'll be successful on their retaliation claim. And retaliation claims are a lot easier to prove because retaliation claims happen, number one, right after the complaint was made. And some people actually put in writing that you are being disciplined because you made a false complaint. And that's where employers could really get in trouble, and that's where they need good counseling. You know, that um, it always amazes me when someone does what you just stated, because, again, 
I always think about, first of all, my thought is always we're on camera. We're being recorded. Um, and as a result of thinking that way, I tend to be very cautious about what I do that is um, public. I tend to be cautious with my words, with interaction with people I work with, etc. cetera, um, because this is a different age, as, as you've mentioned. Um, and, you know, this isn't the good old days. Um, and there isn't any reason why somebody should think, in my mind, from a management or employer standpoint, that they can retaliate against somebody who made a complaint. I mean, that just seems silly. And the fact that people would put that in writing almost seems unbelievable. Right. And, and, that, and that's a good point. And, um, you know, b because I do both sides, I kind of see the argument on both sides, right? On one side, the law says, listen, we don't want anybody to fear coming forward. They don't want anybody to fear that they're going to say something, the company's going to automatically take management side, they're going to discipline the person, fire the person, they're going to say it's frivolous, and they'll send the person on their way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but, you know, y you have a law that covers every single situation, and sometimes the situation doesn't fit, right? Because you can have an employee who, you know, some people, let's face it, some people out there are crazy, and they look for trouble. And let's say they don't like their supervisor, so they really intentionally, you know, married man with kids, family, good person, does the right thing like yourself, what you just described, and someone has a vendetta against you. They say, well, he's been looking at me funny, He's creeping me out. Maybe they're trying to transfer to a different supervisor looking for another opportunity. Who knows what the reason is? And does some type of completely baseless allegation. And for some reason or another, the company finds out, hey, listen, this is really baseless. We know that this didn't happen. You're just doing it because you want to work with your friend or whatever, whatever other reason or motive they have. And they might feel, hey, you know what? You did this. You wasted all our time and money in the investigation. You're messing with this guy's life. We don't want you as part of this company anymore, so we want to get rid of you. Now, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And according to the law, you really can't do it. I mean, you better have some really strong evidence if you're going to try to go that route, and I would recommend you don't even try it. So, you know, you, you're, you know so, so that's why some people have difficulty with the law. They look for, like, one example that doesn't fit well within the law, and they say, well, this law is ridiculous. But, you know, nothing's perfect. The law isn't perfect. You have to again, do one black-letter law, with certain exceptions and carve-outs, that covers the vast majority of situations. And that you're always going to be able to come up with a fact pattern that doesn't really justify it. But that's the best that we could do. I mean, in reality, we don't, if people feel like they're being treated differently because of their race, their age, religion, gender, disability, sexual orientation, they should have a right to complain. I mean, you know, the workplace should be a place free of that discrimination. You should go into your job, which, again, you spend the majority of your time, your life doing, your work life at least, and you should be, be able to do your job without the fear of being retaliated against if you're treated differently under a protected class. 
One thing that you've alluded to and which is an important area to mention as well is that sexual harassment claims are made by men as well as by women. Is yeah. that something that we've seen perhaps the numbers of that actually increase in recent years? Uh, we have. We have. Again, it's, it's definitely still the minority, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it, it has happened. I, I've had a, a case, actually uh, a, a pretty well-known case, as in, in the federal government where you had uh, somebody that was a, in a supervisory management position. She was pretty high up. Uh, she happened to be married. She was working with um, uh, correction officers, and she was sexually harassing them, sending them uh, videos and photos, and, and uh, so one time she took a trip, a, a business trip, where someone was there and invited her to to the room. So th- that happens, and also I, I've seen it with respect to uh, sexual orientation discrimination. There's one case I, I, which was probably one of the craziest cases I've ever handled, where uh, a young, good-looking guy came into my office. He was gay. He he he, he identified himself as gay, and he said, "You know, I work for this nonprofit." And this priest keeps on hitting me, hitting on me, and keep on asking me about my relationships and flirting with me and making me feel very uncomfortable. And that's not the reason why I took this job. So I said, listen, I mean, that kind of sounds highly unlikely. I mean, do you have any proof of it? So sure enough, he provided me with some letters from the priest to another man, long letters saying, you know, you're the love of my life, I'll never forget you, so at first, you know, this this was a very sensitive case, right? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to embarrass the priest. I didn't want to embarrass the church. So we, we wrote a letter. We didn't include the, we didn't include that that evidence that I just described. Uh, we got back this very very strong letter. But how dare you? We're going to sue you for defamation, and, and you know, this is a frivolous lawsuit, and yeah, ba ba ba. So then, I sent the letters. The case settled immediately. So, I mean, it could really happen in, 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 in any setting, and you can't just based on knowing, thinking that you know the person or looking at the position they're in and say, this can't happen. I could tell you that through the years, anything, anything could happen. I could tell you through the years, listen, litigation is not perfect, right? I believe that there are some people who win who shouldn't win, and I believe there are some people who lose that shouldn't lose. It's not what happened. It's what you could prove, and that happens with all litigation. And but we're, we're as close to perfect as you can be. In cases, is there, and this may be a difficult thing to answer in the fashion that I'm asking the question, is there a typical amount of time that a case takes? Well, uh, uh, you know, litigation is tricky. First of all, a case could settle at any time. Mm-hmm. Most cases end up settling. I'd say, you know, only maybe 5% or less actually go through a trial where you get a verdict. Why is that? Um, risk factors. Uh-huh. First of all, especially for, like, employment-type cases, there's actually provisions for attorney's fees. So what that means, in like, like, let's say a typical personal injury case, the plaintiff's attorney gets one-third of the amount that the plaintiff gets. So if the case settles for, let's say, $46,000 and $1,000 went to expenses, you're left with 45000 The attorney walks away with fifteen. The client walks away with thirty. Case is over. Mm-hmm. 
in the employment arena, both for wage and hour type stuff, like salary stuff uh, and overtime and discrimination, sexual harassment, things of that nature, if the plaintiff wins, they're entitled to their reasonable attorney's fees. So not only is the defendant paying for their own lawyer, but if there's a decision against them, against the employer, they'd have to pay the award to the plaintiff plus the reasonable attorney's fees, which, you know, an hourly rate could be $400, $500, $600 an hour. And the more it's litigated, the higher those attorney's fees go, right? So it doesn't always happen, but I've seen awards where the actual plaintiff could make $20,000, but the attorney gets awarded one hundred and fifty or $200,000 because the employer's attorney probably guided the employer incorrectly and didn't see the fact that there was, a, even though it wasn't a valuable case, it was a strong case, and ultimately went, went ahead. Mm. So really, a good, a good employer attorney will, I mean, you've got to kind of, I know it's difficult sometimes, but you have to take the emotion out of it. You have to make it a business decision, saying, hey, listen, if we fight this thing, it's going to cost us X, guaranteed in defense attorney's fees, plus the expenses. Then if we lose, it's going to cost us not only what we would lose, but the attorney's fees. Mm-hmm. Let's come to some type of resolution. Mm-hmm. Other, other plaintiffs say, no, 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 listen, this is going to be precedent. Listen, face it, some companies, money's not an object. Right. They're like, listen, I'd rather fight this thing and lose. Because if I, if I, and if I fight it and win, then it'll probably deter other people from bringing lawsuits. So there's a, a lot of different theories behind settlement, right? But usually you could tell, between me and you, you could really tell if the company believed that there was a strong lawsuit versus not a strong one based upon a lot of times the settlement amount. If someone's settling for nuisance value, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars they probably really felt like nothing happened, but they didn't want to spend $30,000 or $40,000 litigating the case. Okay, we're going to pause there in our discussion. We've got a lot more to get to. Folks, you want to join us in our discussion, you can. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with attorney Jonathan Bell. His specialty is in the area of labor and employment law. He's the owner of Bell Law Group, which is on the web at belllg, that's all as one word, dot com. And he's talking with us on a program about a number of topics. The very first one we started talking about is talking about sexual harassment in the workplace and uh, some of the uh, developments there, uh, some of the changes that are uh, taking place uh, in terms of um, training in uh, New York State, New York City, some of the requirements with that um, as well that uh, Jonathan has brought to our attention in uh, our discussion so far. I've mentioned the fact that if you want to join us in the discussion, you're on point with some of the things that we're talking about. You can feel free, 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. One of the thoughts that I had heading into this discussion today, too, is in this area of, um, because this often comes up in these discussions, where sometimes a um, defense is offered of, what is alleged to be sexual harassment, uh, 
being something that is, quote-unquote, consensual in uh, nature. How does the law, I guess, define or set parameters for what are consensual relationships? And then the other question with that, Jonathan, is in this day and age, is that something that employers really should frown upon? Well, that's a very good question. So uh, consensual uh, relationships, at least under the law, federal, state, city, uh, are permitted. Okay? Uh, that's as a general rule. Mm-hmm. Now, there might be, um, depending upon your profession, uh, some rules and laws that you have to abide by that, that uh, prohibit some relationships. For example, although this is not an employee-employer setting like a matrimonial lawyer, uh, can't start a sexual relationship with their client while they're going through a divorce, something to, to that effect. Now, in the employee-employer relationships, uh, companies can set forth their own guidelines, either prohibiting it or, which I think is a better idea because sometimes you can't control it, duties to disclose, right? It's, it's not that big of a deal when you have two employees that are of the same status, they start to date. I mean, to be honest with you, that's how I met my wife. I met her in the uh, employment environment. Um, there should be a duty to disclose. Now, now the, the, the more difficult or trickier aspect is when you have a supervisor-employee relationship. So, again, that could be consensual. It happens all the time. However, there should be a duty to report, uh, and after that duty to report, if there's another supervisor available, it's a, it's a good idea to transfer that employee to the other supervisor because then you might have another type of, you know, sexual harassment is only one type of gender discrimination. It falls under gender discrimination. So if, if, if a male employee sees a female employee getting preferential treatment and they think it's because of a relationship, they could actually bring a claim for gender discrimination. Sexual harassment falls under the general uh, discrimination law. Okay, so it's not it's not prohibited, but it's a good idea to report it. Maybe have you know a management meeting about it if that's the case. And as soon as that relationship, because you know relationships could start out consensual, then all of a sudden they turn right. People break up. Um, so one one of the, one of the people aren't aren't interested anymore. That happens very very common. As soon as that relationship ends. Now you are in jeopardy if the employer continues to go after the employee and seek, to, seek them out in a dating or sexual nature. So it's, it's tricky, but listen, you can't help, you know, again, because you're spending so much time in the workplace, uh, people, you know, falling in love, and a lot of relationships start out in the workplace. So you have to be open to that idea. You, you, it's, it's a, um, you, if your company completely prohibits that type of relationship, it's going to happen anyway, and uh, then you'll be maybe subject to discipline, but it's going to happen. It's just natural. Now, that takes me right to the next question I had, because years ago, I worked for a company that instituted this policy against people um, who were employees of the company being involved in romantic relationships. Um, The exact reasoning behind that I won't go into. 
Um, but that was done, and at that time, you know, we wondered, is that really legal? I mean, can companies actually do that? There's nothing illegal about it, okay? The only thing is, the only problem uh, with it is that it's going to be very, very difficult to enforce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might end up losing some very good, valuable employee who adds a lot to your company uh, because of it. So it's, it's just not good practice. But there's no, you know, to answer your question directly, there's no law against it completely prohibiting it. Now, there is, all, I mean, let's get, you know, there, there is always an argument that, hey, what happens, you can't control what my life, what happens outside of the workplace. And right. that is true, right? right? You can't have a law saying, hey, no one, no one is allowed to, to drink alcohol, right? That you, you, can't, you can't give those strict guidelines. You can't control things in most circumstances. But generally, uh, um, in the workforce, you are allowed to provide some type of policy against inter-office dating, especially when it comes to a supervisor-employee relationship. Mm. Now, one of the areas that I've mentioned as well that I wanted to touch upon in discussion, and you know, you cover a lot of areas in the work that you do, is to talk a little bit about the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is federal legislation that took effect back in 1990. And I was thinking about this this morning on my way here. The amazing thing is, maybe this, maybe I'm getting old thinking about this from this standpoint, the ADA is actually almost 30 years old. I mean, that's, that floored me when I stopped and thought about that sure. this morning. Um, what is the compliance issue with the ADA when it comes to people with disabilities? Things like, especially wheelchair access, because I've heard at times that can be and has been, in some cases, really is a huge issue for people in wheelchairs. Right. So, so, so the ADA right now is huge, and the reason why there are such strict laws and why they're uh, being litigated so frequently now is because, you know, the baby boomers are getting older and they're suffering from different disabilities, and you want to protect, uh, you know, that generation and generations to come. So I deal with uh, generally three types of ADA claims, okay? ADA, as you said, wheelchair accessibility, being able to, whether it be going to a supermarket, going to a restaurant, uh, going to a local stationery store, everyone has to be ADA compliant, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's one scenario. Another c- scenario is ADA accessibility for people who are visually or hearing impaired for websites. That's going to be, that's crazy litigation right now. It, it's going around, uh, every website has to be, ADA accessible. For example, Dragon Software has to be able to read your website. You can't have a website open for quote-unquote public accommodation where the the website's being read, but then there's a picture of a 25% coupon click and print here that can't be read by the software. That could technically be a violation. So that's issue number two. Issue number three is ADA in the workplace. Right? 
those, there's two types of discrimination claims in the workplace under the ADA. Number one, you're treating me differently because I have an AD, uh, a, a, a disability, right? Whether it be you are firing me, suspending me, demoting me, or just general harassment. You make fun of my disability. That's issue number one. And issue number two, which is a lot more complex, is the reasonable accommodation, right? I have a disability. I could perform my job. I just need a reasonable accommodation. What do I do? So those are the three different parts of the law that I get involved with with respect to the ADA. Now, going to the wheelchair accessibility and public accommodations, as you were just describing, again, I, I see just my nature. I see both sides of the argument. On one hand, it's a little bit of a draconian part of the law which states that, hey, if I go to a local pizza place and I go with somebody in a wheelchair and it's not accessible, in other words, there's a step that gets into it, or the tables are not a certain, at least one or two tables are not a certain height, or my wheelchair can't fit into the bathroom, I, or there's no railings on there, I could sue that pizza place, right? And I could sue that pizza place without even giving them prior written notice. And that pizza place, number one, will have to make certain changes depending upon how much income they make and how feasible it is. Number two, they would have to pay for an attorney to defend them. And number three, they'd have to pay for the plaintiff's fees as well, an hourly fee. So some people, and, and I could see the argument, small business, like, well, that's completely unreasonable. They should be able to, they should give me prior written notice, give me a 90, 120-day period to correct it before I have to pay all these things. If I, if I would have known, I would have corrected it, right? But the other side of the coin is, well, if, if that's all that requires is a letter, nobody's going to make these changes until they get the letter. So all these places are going to remain non-compliant until they finally get a letter. Then they'll say, okay, now we have to do it. So, for example, this case, this, this type of law gets very, very bad press. It's in the Post. It's in the Daily News. There's a lot of legislation that, that, that they want to change the law, and they might. And I get, I get the prior written notice. I'm not arguing against the prior written notice. I'm just giving you the arguments on both sides. Mm-hmm. But California, for example, they did this, like, they used this litigation over and over and over again. But now even though they made all these complaints, almost every place in California is ADA accessible. Even the hotels, they have lifts to bring someone who, who um, can walk into pools and things of that nature. So they want to give people with disabilities access like everybody else has. So, listen, if a big company is not doing it just because they're not aware of it, but they could afford it or they just don't want to do it, I'm all for it. But then on, this, on the other hand, you have these smaller businesses who literally – they can't afford it. They're going to go out of business with it, and then you have to kind of like pick and choose and be a little bit reasonable. So I, I mostly defend companies in this situation, mostly defend companies. We've, we've had a few cases. There was a few plaintiff's attorneys, in my opinion, that abused the system where they just, you know, start hundreds of lawsuits a year. You know, people like me, someone comes to me in a wheelchair, they're like, listen, I just want to be able to go into the local drugstore and get my medication. Okay, I'll start that one lawsuit. Okay, let's get this thing taken care of and rectified for you. But mostly, it's employers calling me saying, hey, John, I just got hit with one of these things. What do I do? Now, what I do in that situation, this is important to know, is uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of plaintiff's lawyers out there just looking to make a quick buck. All they want to do is settle the case and move on. So the, so the, so the, the company doesn't change its practice, and then they'll get hit again. So what I do is I make sure that we do get the expert in there, we make it compliant. If, if there's a step, 
the place has a temporary ramp. There's a handicap sticker outside. There's a bell that, that someone could ring that, to get help to get into the premises. So I try to do things where the employer doesn't get hit again. That, that's really what I focus on. Jonathan Bell talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. He's a labor and employment attorney, the owner of Bell Law Group. He's with us for our full program till 7.30. And what we'll do is take a pause for our top-of-the-hour update and start on the phones at 877-337-6666. That's our number here at WFAN. It is Sunday morning on WFAN at 7.30. It's the NFL preview. Sports Edge with Rick Wolf follows our 8 o'clock update. And then it's the redefinition of the term dynamic duo. Yep, they're here. That Football Sunday program's along after our 9 o'clock update this morning. And good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in a discussion with Jonathan Bell on our program. He's a labor and employment attorney, the owner of Bell Law Group, and he's talking with us about a number of areas. We were talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, and some of the provisions associated with that. Um, I also mentioned the fact, as we talked about sexual harassment in the workplace, that what we, what we would try to do as well is to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. You want to join us in the discussion. It's 877-337-6666. That's our number here at The Fan. I'll tell you what, let's start on the phone. First, we go over to... Uh, Bayonne, New Jersey, to Lefty, who's been holding for some time. Lefty, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, Bob. I, I love your show. Um, I think you know I was going to call in because I make wheelchair access videos. It's called the Ignorance is No Excuse Tour, and we've been doing this for years now, uh, basically in Hudson County a lot. We go to Hudson County, and we found um, libraries without access, a police station that needed signage for their access because they had steps, uh, firehouses in Tuckerton had no access. Um, we go around and we call people out for this with cameras. It's all on video. Uh, Bob has seen some of these videos, I'm sure, because we've been assaulted. I've been yelled at been cursed at. We went to um, a place in Bayonne that sells wheelchairs, and we asked them, do you have a wheelchair ramp? And she slammed the door in my face. Wait a minute. Hang, hang friend- on. Hang on. For <laughs> hang on. Wait a minute. I, I'm going to have to pick myself up off the floor. Now, um, Bayonne is still part of the United States of America. As I I understand, okay? First of all, in Bayonne, you went to a place that sells wheelchairs, and they did not have the proper access? Is that right? shocking, right? Yeah, it's pretty shocking. My friend has uh, multiple sclerosis and um, stage 4 cancer. She was in a wheelchair, and she couldn't get into the store. So I said to the woman, do you have wheelchair access? And she started yelling at me, turn off your phone, turn off your phone. I said, ma'am, do you have wheelchair access? She slams the door in my face. So I start yelling at her. I'm so- telling her, I told her she's an idiot. And I said, we're going to sue you for $100,000. She comes running out of the store and starts hitting me, knocks me to the ground. Oh, boy. So the times that I've been assaulted, I've been assaulted twice. I went to court, and I told them I dropped the charges to put a ramp in. And that's what's been happening. I They put a ramp in. I got 12 ramps in Bayonne by, by being a jerk, basically. Jonathan, uh, I, I think that I mean I think it's terrific that you're doing it. Uh, that, that, that's that, that's the law. That, that that's what needs to get done. These places have to be handicap accessible. I love your passion behind it. 
You well, know, they don't. Because there's, there's, a lot, there's, a lot of people, there's a lot of people that frown upon this kind of stuff. But realistically, like yourself, when you know people who are in a wheelchair that deserve access, uh, I think you're doing the right thing. You're a good advocate for those people. So, you know, I well, applaud you for doing it. Here's the problem. They're telling you they're all grandfathered in. All these buildings are old, so they're grandfathered in, so they don't have to do anything. And that's, the problem that, is that's the not true. That's not true. They do have to do something. So even so, there are different rules for things for for renovations and buildings that come up after 1992. But even before 1992, where it's feasible, you know, putting in a ramp, having a temporary ramp, removing barriers, uh, where, so people in wheelchairs could get around. There's no such thing as grandfathered in. That, that's that's uh, something that usually people say to me, that I say, listen, that might be with the Department of Buildings, but that's not the federal law according to the ADA, and they, could be, they still could be sued in a lawsuit. And they'd be responsible for not only making the changes, their costs, and the plaintiff's attorney's fees costs. So any place like that that you're describing, really they should be thanking you because realistically you, or, or more importantly the person who's in a wheelchair, could go to a lawyer, start a lawsuit, and that's it. They're done. Now, understand that under, especially federal law, the plaintiff himself or herself in the wheelchair is not entitled to any money damages, right? But those changes have to be made. But in places like New York State or New York City, there are local laws that would entitle the person to some damages. Usually not a lot, $1,000 here or there, but really the, the, the thrust of the law is making the change. Well, there are some towns that make you fix the problem. If, the, if you put a new facade on your, or a new window, or a new doorway, you have to fix that, wheel, the wheelchair step, the, uh, the step. But a lot of towns are not doing that. There are a lot of towns are letting this, these, these buildings put up new fronts, new, new, new storefronts, without changing the, uh, the access. Right. And, and they're all subject to a lawsuit, and they're all going to be responsible eventually when the, you know, again, this is big right now. It was big in California for a while. Now it's New York and, and also Florida. Florida, they're really going after the hotels with the pools. But, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a trend that's happening. It's a federal law. It could literally, just like New York, it could happen in any other state in the country. So New Jersey, I'm sure there's going to be people who catch on also. Eventually there's going to be changes made because I hate to say it, but when there's money to be made for a lawyer, they're going to figure this out and they're going to go and they're going to start these lawsuits just the way that it happens. Well, they got to treat disabled war vets a lot better because they don't realize that a lot of these people are disabled war vets, and um, they wouldn't even have these stores if it wasn't for disabled war vets. So they need to think about that. Yeah, well, thank you for your service, and you're 100% right. Thank you, Lefty. All righty. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. You want to join us in our discussion with Jonathan Bell. He's a labor and employment attorney, the owner of Bell Law Group. Let's go to Gus on Long Island. Gus, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Thank you. How are you this morning? I'm doing pretty well. And yourself? Good. Jonathan, I got a question for you. I had a buddy that works for a company. He got in an accident. He got rear-ended, and uh, he had damage to his shoulder, elbow, nerve damage, and he's been going to, like, disability doctors and stuff and, and therapy. And uh, after two years, the company terminated him because he can't work anymore. Is that right? The answer is it depends. Okay, the question is, can he perform the essential functions of his job? That's the test. Can he perform the essential functions of job with or without an accommodation? Now, if he can, and they're literally doing it because of his disability, he has a great case. If he needs a reasonable accommodation, he has to engage in something called the interactive process. He has to get uh, 
medical evidence, show what his limitations are, speak with management, go back and forth, try to figure out what it is he can and cannot do, and give him a reasonable accommodation uh, to, to perform the essential duties. If he can't do it, no matter what reasonable accommodation they give, then unfortunately they do have a right to terminate. You know, they, 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 want, they want people in the job that could do the job, right? So the question is, you know, how badly is the injury and what the job duty entails? Yeah, he can't. He can't do it. He had a couple of surgeries, yeah, and he just can't do the job anymore. Well, if he really can't do the job anymore, I mean, think from an employer's perspective. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a business. You want to feel passionate about your employees. You want to help them. You want to become passionate, right? But at the same token, there's a there's a job that needs to get done. They're paying for it. They you know they need to do it. So um, the the problem is, you know, and you bring up a good point for for reasonable accommodation and the interactive process. A lot of people violate that law without even realizing it. There really does have to be a good faith discussion about what he can and cannot do. Are there certain job duties and functions that are not essential? Maybe we get rid of some of those. Maybe they could. A lot of people uh, could work from home in our day and age, right? Telecommute. Sometimes, yeah, well, you know, some, some lawyers in my office they work from home. They, everything's on, on on Dropbox. Everything's on the internet when they go to court. They don't have to be in my office. Yeah, right? but most. So, his job, his job details a lot of delivery. You know, he's got to deliver and pack out and deliver and pack out. But the problem is that the company had a, you know, every four years they have a contract and there's a buyout at the end of the four years. So before the contract now is going to be up in December, you know, there's a buyout. Shouldn't he be offered a buyout and uh, because he can't do the job anymore? So, uh, you know, it, it really depends on what that buyout is, what, what the terms are. I wouldn't be able to answer that question without getting much more involved in the case to see how the company runs. What, you know, if he, like they can't treat him differently just because he has a disability. That can't happen. So really, you know, the answer is it depends. I'd have to review all the information and, and then make a conclusion uh, based upon those facts. All right. I appreciate the time and effort. You no problem. Thanks Thank you. Calling. Thanks for your call Thank this morning, Gus. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. You want to join us in our discussion. When we're talking about this um, area of uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Um, one goes to the case of somebody who uh, is hired for a job and is pregnant. The question comes up, can a company actually fire that person because the person's going to miss time from work? Uh, the answer to that question is definitely not. Um, pregnancy discrimination is prevalent, prevalent in, this, in, this, um, uh, in this day and age. And unfortunately, a lot of employers' gut instinct is, oh, my God, this person is going to be out because they're going to be out uh, uh, right before they give birth, and they're going to have the baby, they're going to be out again. You can't discriminate against someone who's pregnant. That's actually considered uh, a disability, and the law uh, protects them against it. Even when, even when the person has the baby and they want to do things like breastfeed you know, or pump, uh, they have to allow accommodations for that mm -hmm. uh, under the law. So it's a hotly litigated field because, unfortunately, employers are regularly violating the law by either not hiring them or, once they get pregnant, giving them a hard time, harassing them, forcing them out, or basically outright firing them. And you cannot do that. It is considered a disability under the law. 
We're talking with Jonathan Bell on our program on the fan this morning. He's a labor and employment attorney, the owner of Bell Law Group. Uh, he is with us on our program. We roll until 7.30. That's when the NFL preview happens. After our 8 o'clock update, it is Rick Wolf along with the Sports Edge program. And after our 9 o'clock update, the fabulous Football Sunday program happens here on the fan. We will um, get back to some more of your thoughts as well in the uh, home stretch of our discussion with Jonathan this Sunday morning. Radio.com. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf, along with the Sports Edge program, Football Sunday follows our 9 o'clock update. And, of course, it's the NFL preview at 7.30. We are in the home stretch of our discussion with Jonathan Bell, labor and employment attorney, owner of Bell Law Group. Back to the phone we go to Hector in New Windsor, who's been holding for some time. Hector, good morning. Thanks for holding on. Welcome to the fan. Hey, good morning. It was nice listening to you guys, okay? Thank you. Um, my, my question is, um, my daughter, okay, was hired to work in a nursing home. Um, while she was on probation, she was asked to lift the patient, and she asked for help. Um, in the process, no help was given to her by the nurse, and she injured her shoulder. I wound up having to take her to the emergency room, and like a week later... She had to have shoulder surgery. She's had two shoulder surgeries, you know, since this incident. But while she was on probation and injured, we got a, she got a phone call at home saying she was being terminated. Wow. Is that legal? Wow. Uh, that's pretty severe. I mean, you know, facts and circumstances could change any discussion, but it doesn't sound like what they did is legal. Uh, unless, for example, they come up with a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for doing it. For example, if they claim, hey, listen, this has nothing to do with her injury, but before this happened, she stole money or she abused the patient. Well, then they can, but, and that probably didn't happen, by the way. But no, if, if, if they're doing it strictly because of her disability, uh, they can't uh, terminate um, she should, you know, eventually when she's return, uh, ready to return, the proper way to handle it is to give her that leave. And when she's, when she's ready to return to work, she would come with some certain restrictions. And as long as she could perform the essential functions of her job with those restrictions in place, they should allow her to continue. So um, uh, that, that's, that's something that, again, I would need some more information. I would sit down with her, learn a little bit more about the case, uh, and ultimately potentially start something depending upon what the employer's response would be to that. Even if okay, you're probation, uh, just to be clear, even if you're under probationary period, and a lot of places require an employee under probationary period, you still can't violate the law. You cannot sue somebody based on race, age, religion. I'm sorry, you can't terminate somebody based on race, age, religion, gender, disability, sexual orientation, things of that nature. Okay, so um, for all intents and purposes, um, could you give out a phone number so that you know, we can uh, absolutely. My, my phone number is eight. Very easy. Eight five five John Bell J O N B E L L. Or you could contact me uh, through my through my website on, on Facebook and YouTube. I give great employment tips. Uh, I have an Instagram account too uh, under Bell Law Group. So I'm very easy to contact. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions on any of this content or any any, any other uh, labor and employment issues. I'd be happy to help. I really appreciate your information, and 
Love your show, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Let's do a final call here. Let's go to Ed in West Milford. Ed, thanks for holding on. Welcome to the fan. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. So I guess, uh, you know, in the, in the corporate world, you know, I know that this whole sexual harassment and equal opportunity is a very serious topic, and, uh, and obviously it should be. My concern, though, and I've seen this in, in multiple work areas, is when a false sexual harassment claim is wagered against an employee as a retaliation and what can be done to combat that because i've heard comments at the workplace of you know oh how come he didn't hold the door for me for a woman and then they're complaining that you know chivalry is dead but on the same you know on the same day that same person can be saying oh well that that's an act of sexual discrimination right and, and that, that's a good question and something that uh you know we addressed a little earlier, which is the fact that, you know, th- there has to be laws, there has to be rules, and it has to, it has to be blanketed. There has to be, you know, uh, things that cover most situations. Unfortunately, there are abuses of the system, and every now and then there's a situation where the law seems a little bit unfair, okay? If, I, if, if the situation that you described came to me from an employer and said, what should I do? Someone lodged a complaint because I didn't hold the door open. Okay, and they're claiming that it was because of uh, sexual harassment. Number one, I would tell them, well, that does not constitute sexual harassment. Okay, sexual harassment has to do with a discreet act, like um, uh, a demotion, uh, suspension, taking away some type of pay for some reason, or harassment, meaning it has to be severe and pervasive, constant remarks about the way somebody looks, making them feel uncomfortable because of their gender. So that wouldn't constitute it. So someone lodges a complaint, there should be a, a small investigation, a neutral investigation, with a with a uh, 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 ending in some type of letter saying, hey, we, 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 we took it seriously, we investigated, we spoke to some people, we find that this does not rise to the level of sexual harassment, and then you leave the person alone. You don't retaliate against that person. Because like I said earlier, the problem is, is that people make complaints and then when the complaint is found to be unfounded, they then retaliate against the employee, and then the employee has a strong... They, act, they basically give that employee a case. Okay, John. So the way that the law is written is they want people to feel free to make complaints when they need to complain. And again, I agree with you. It does. It's not the best situation for every situation involved, but it's the best we could do. All right. Ed, thank you for your call. we got to run here. Uh, thank you. Jonathan Bell, thank you very much for joining us on our program this morning. 855-JOHN-BELL, the phone number, bellg.com, the website. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. 7.30 is the NFL preview. After our 8 o'clock update, the Sports Edge, you know where. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.